0: The hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and counterterrorism will come to order. Today, we're holding the first hearing in this Congress of the Near East Subcommittee. It's significant that the topic we're considering is Iraq. Not only is Iraq a place of enormous strategic interest for the U.S., it is a country where 4,565 United States service members have given their lives. We remember and honor these individuals and the families who survived them. Iraqi freedom came at a great cost. Several months ago, Ranking Member Murphy and I traveled to Iraq to meet with U.S. US officials there and with Iraqi government leaders. Iraq has proven for nearly two decades to be the place where vital U.S. interests in the Middle East intersect. This is the focus of our hearing today. In 2014, ISIS seized control of roughly a third of Iraqi territory, it terrorized the Iraqi people with a level of brutality unexpected even in a country that had lived under the regime of Saddam Hussein. While ISIS is no longer a territorial caliphate, Iraq still faces major security and economic challenges. Among those challenges are how to build an independent Iraq, how to sustain a vibrant economy, whether and how to assimilate returning ISIS fighters and how to counter excessive Iranian influence. The question for us is how can the U.S. best support Iraq's efforts to achieve a secure and prosperous future and become a stabilizing force in the region? We note that Iraq has significant natural resources, but it's failing to exploit them. It flares its natural gas because of insufficient infrastructure. The annual value of flared gas is in the tens of billions of dollars. Even so, infrastructure investments have been negotiated for years, but never executed. Just last month, a 30-year, $53 billion project with ExxonMobil was placed on hold. Recently, the Iraqi government lifted travel restrictions in Baghdad's green zone, but the security situation is not resolved. ISIS may no longer have territorial control but is reorganizing in underground cells. The Iraqi government faces enormous challenges to prevent these extremists from terrorizing and radicalizing the people. Of course, the ISIS challenge is not just from terrorist cells. There are currently tens of thousands of former ISIS fighters and their families in camps in Iraq and Syria. The government is committed to bringing home as many as 30,000 Iraqis who went to Syria as part of the Islamic State. Determining how to handle such a staggering number of radicalized men, women, and even children is a daunting challenge. Another concern is the ongoing presence of militias that were formed to counter ISIS. These militias have not been easily assimilated into Iraqi security apparatus. Some of them remain under Iranian direction. And finally, and perhaps most significantly, Iraq needs a strategy to address its relationship with Iran. The Iraqi leaders we met with underscored that they do not want their nation to become a vassal state of anyone. I note that recent Iranian attacks on ships and a U.S. drone have elevated our concern for the safety of American troops there, as well as our diplomatic personnel. The question then becomes, how can we help Iraq foster closer ties with other countries in the region to balance Iranian influence? I'm grateful to have two expert witnesses from the administration with us to discuss these issues. I hope today that you'll be able to provide an overview not only of the current situation on the ground in the context of these challenges, but also to provide your insights and recommendations about how the U.S. can support Iraq in its journey to become a secure, economically successful, and independent state. And with that, I'll turn things over to Senator Murphy for his
1: comments. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I uh, was grateful to join you in visiting the region, grateful for our hearing today. Um, As you've noted, more than a year and a half since the Iraqi government declared victory over ISIS, a number of challenges still remain. The first is obvious, ISIS is not fully defeated. It has lost control over territory, that is a very important step, but the group has gone underground to regroup, and they still periodically mount insurgency style attacks in the country the threat they pose in Iraq remains. Of course, there can't be any enduring victory over ISIS in Iraq without political stability. The Iraqi government will need to rebuild decimated cities and help millions of civilians that are displaced. The Iraqi government will need to resolve territorial and resource disputes with the Kurdistan regional government. They need to tackle corruption, improve service delivery, diversify the economy, integrate militia groups. If this sounds like a familiar prescription for success, it's because it is. The political mission inside Iraq is the one that America has unfortunately failed at over and over. The military successes, they come a little bit easier. We've spent a lot of money in Iraq, averaging about $1.2 billion annually in recent years to train and equip Iraqi security forces and billions more in economic assistance, humanitarian aid, and lines of credit. But looking back on the trends of U.S. assistance to Iraq, there's a pattern huge spikes in military and non-military assistance levels in response to outbreaks of violence in the country, and then dramatic drop-offs once victory is declared, only to see this cycle repeat. There has to be a better way to play the long game here, to signal a longer-term multi-year level of commitment in ways that doesn't require us to dramatically ramp up and ramp down funding in response to crises. When we were in Iraq in April, um, I heard from many Iraqis who told me that they worry that the United States is just going to move on and forget about them. Uh, Listen, I oppose the Iraq war, but I also understand that we have a moral obligation as a country to help fix a nation that we played a leading role in breaking, so we need to reassure the Iraqis that we're invested in their long-term stability and success. Unfortunately, it seems some of the moves by this administration are signaling the opposite. Today, the bulk of our assistance to Iraq is military assistance. And because it's parceled out on a year-to-year basis, it seems that many of our representatives in Baghdad are spending their time just trying to buy as much stuff as quickly as possible for the Iraqis. One of the folks we talked to there said that they would rather have $100 million over 10 years than have to spend $100 million in one year. The balance of our assistance, military to civilian, seems badly askew. Last September, we also closed our consulate in Basra and withdrew our diplomats. Over the weekend, new reports emerged that the diplomatic drawdown from our embassy in Baghdad has left less than 15 State Department officials working directly on our core diplomatic functions. From an outside perspective, it is hard to reconcile the withdrawal of our diplomats now when we were able to maintain a diplomatic presence in Baghdad and Basra through even the most dangerous years in Iraq in the mid-2000s. How can we hope to have any influence in Iraq without sufficient diplomatic personnel in place, how can we accomplish our goals if we have no one on the field? And lastly, the administration's backward policy towards Iran is making our job much, much harder. I hope to ask you some questions about the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization. We have put our troops at risk of attack and we've cut off much of our ability to talk to any of the Iraqi militia groups that have relationships with Tehran. The cost of this new hastily planned hard line with Iran is to make our job of political reconciliation a lot harder in Iraq. Grateful for the hearing, there's a lot to discuss, and I look forward to hearing from both of our witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Um, Let me note that I made an error in my comments. I said the annual value of flared gas is in the tens of billions of dollars. That's not accurate. It's in the single billions of dollars. Uh, We have uh, one panel here today with two witnesses. Ambassador John, excuse me, Joan Palaszczuk is here. She is the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Is a foreign career, excuse me, is a career foreign service officer. Has focused her career in the Middle East and North Africa. Most recently, she served as the U.S. Ambassador to the People's Republic of Algeria. Her previous positions included serving as the Director of the State Department's Office of Egypt and Levant Affairs and Director of the Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs, Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, Libya, and Regional Refugee Coordinator based at the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan. We also have Michael, or Mick, P. Mulroy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. Mr. Mulroy is a retired paramilitary operations officer from the Central Intelligence Agency. His previous assignments include Chief of Department in Special Activities Center, Chief of Station of an overseas country, Chief of Expeditionary Team in a war zone country, Chief of Base in a war zone country, Deputy Chief of Branch in a Special Activities Division – in the Special Activities Division. He served as a U.S. Marine Reservist who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll now turn to our first witness, Ambassador Palaszczuk. Thank you for your service and your willingness to testify here today. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, we would appreciate that so that we can engage with some questions. Ambassador.
2: Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today and uh, agree that my full testimony should be submitted for the record. Thank you for that. I look forward to discussing the challenges Iraq continues to face and the many ways the United States can help Iraq as it seeks stability and reintegrates into the region. Our relationship with Iraq remains vital for U.S. national security interests. Bolstering Iraq as a sovereign, stable, united, and democratic partner continues to be our principal objective. We must remain engaged to ensure that Iraq can fend off internal and external threats, including from Iran, to its sovereignty and territorial integrity. U.S. security assistance remains integral to Iraq's stability. Iraq Iraq relies on our assistance to reinforce the primacy of the Iraqi security forces, including the Kurdish Peshmerga. The United States remains committed to the enduring defeat of ISIS and eliminating the conditions that would allow for its resurgence. We operate in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government, with two dozen other countries helping Iraq ensure that our gains against ISIS endure. Iraq's growing ability to act in partnership with the coalition to defeat our shared national security threats is one of the truly remarkable developments since 2014. Despite the gains they have made, Iraq's armed forces are stretched by competing demands and need continued assistance to eradicate ISIS remnants, secure Iraq's borders, and become a source of regional stability. The US-led coalition must continue to build the capacity of Iraq's legitimate and professional security forces. Iraq's stability will hinge upon its government's ability to assert control over militia groups. We support the government of Iraq's efforts to bring all armed groups fully under state control. On July 1st, Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi issued a decree to institutionalize the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF. Disciplined elements of the PMF were instrumental in the territorial defeat of ISIS. Some rogue elements, however, take instructions from Iran. Their activities are particularly destabilizing in the liberated areas where they prioritize smuggling and extortion over fighting ISIS. These same groups surveil our diplomatic facilities and Iraqi military bases where, coalition, where the coalition is training Iraqi security forces. Some militia leaders plot against U.S. interests and plan operations that could kill Americans, coalition partners, and Iraqis. Undisciplined PMF groups also continue to conduct indirect fire attacks as they did against our consulate in Basra last year. The Prime Minister's decree, therefore, is an important step towards shoring up Iraq's sovereignty and security. Implementation of the decree will be key, and we will engage with the government of Iraq on its plans for enforcement. Eliminating Iraqi dependence on Iranian energy imports will strengthen the Iraqi economy and deprive Iran of resources to exert its malign influence. Iraq should remain focused on advancing projects to install new power generation facilities, develop electricity delivery infrastructure, and promote domestic production of natural gas. These projects make economic sense, contribute to Iraq's full autonomy from Iran, and support our policy of denying the Iranian regime revenue. In order for Iraq to reach its economic potential, the government of Iraq must also tackle corruption and excessive red tape. The United States continues to support an initiative from the UN's Conference on Trade and Development, which will increase transparency for the Iraqi public and U.S. investors. It is in our interest to support Iraq's democratic development, but significant challenges remain to the building of durable institutions that protect the rule of law, secure human rights, and promote free and fair elections. Supporting pluralism and protecting the rights of minorities is integral to the administration's effort to defeat ISIS counter violent extremism, and promote religious freedom. In the five years since ISIS launched its campaign of genocide against Yazidis, Christians, and other religious minorities, we have programmed over $340 million to help the recovery of Iraq's persecuted religious communities. Finally, a strong Kurdistan regional government within a unified and federal Iraq is essential to Iraq's long-term stability. We are proud of our long-standing partnership with Iraq's Kurdish people. Following the Kurds' 2017 independence referendum, the administration has focused on helping Baghdad and the Iraqi Kurdistan region mend relations. The government of Iraq and the KRG have made progress, and we will continue to work with both sides to resolve outstanding tensions. Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to answering your questions.
0: Thank you, Ambassador. Um, uh, Mr. Mulroy. Thank you, sir.
3: Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee, it is my pleasure and privilege to speak to you today. The U.S.-Iraq security partnership is of vital importance. Any disengaging from Iraq would risk an, an ISIS resurgence. It would cede the field to Iran and destabilize the region. U.S. and coalition forces are operating at the invitation of the Iraqi government anchored in the Strategic Framework Agreement signed by our countries more than 10 years ago. The best way to honor U.S. coalition and Iraqi sacrifices is to bolster Iraqi security forces to defend their sovereignty against internal and external threats. The fight against ISIS is not over and the road to recovery will be long. Five years ago, ISIS controlled a territory the size of West Virginia. The group seized major cities attracted terrorist fighters from across the globe, and generated over $1 million in income every day. It also claimed responsibility for numerous global attacks, and its violent propaganda cast a shadow across the world. When the government of Iraq requested support to defeat ISIS, the United States answered the call. We mobilized a global coalition, which now stands at 80 members. The combined joint task force, Operation Inherent Resolve, includes the United States and 15 other nations. It brought immense firepower through thousands of airstrikes and combat ex- experience side-by-side advisors. I have been one of those advisors in the past, and I can tell you that nothing gives you more confidence than having the United States Air Force above you and a tactical air controller beside you. I would also like to highlight Iraq's counter-terrorism service. They rank among the region's most capable and they serve as a testament to our capacity-building efforts. Our priority now is to ensure that the investments of blood and sweat in the de-ISIS fight outlive the warfighting the last five years. Our by-with-and-through approach continues to benefit both countries with a relatively limited U.S. footprint, down from 150,000 in 2008 to just over 5,000 today. The defeat of ISIS, however, is not a foregone conclusion. We see ISIS building clandestine networks across Iraq and Syria, working to undermine the Iraqi security forces and the Syrian Democratic Forces, and to create conditions they need to seize territory in the future. At the Department of Defense, we also recognize that good governance and economic opportunity are needed to translate battlefield gains into lasting peace. U.S. diplomats are the main effort in this endeavor, And at the Department of Defense, we proudly support them. Critics of our military presence often claim we have ulterior motives. We don't. We are in Iraq to defeat ISIS and build Iraq's capacity. The more capable capable their security institutions are, the more resilient they will be in the face of terrorists and malign activities uh, bent on exploitation. Iran is the foremost of these malign actors. Iran-backed militias have consistently flouted Baghdad and turned to crime for self-enrichment. We see Iran using this playbook throughout the region. They hide behind their proxies and use them to fight only for Iranian interests. Our primary concern is the extent to which these non-compliant militias, more loyal to Tehran than Baghdad, undermine the Prime Minister's authority, prey on Iraqi ordinary, ordinary Iraqis and destabilize the fragile communities recently liberated by ISIS. It is in Iraq's national security interest to unburden itself from Iran's exploitation. We are encouraged by the Prime Minister's July 1st decree to bring all militias under formal Iraqi control. Another high priority concern is baghdad erbil relations. We are encouraging the government of Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government to work through their political differences, coordinate security in northern Iraq, and prevent an ISIS resurgent. There is also growing risk that ISIS will exploit their captured fighters in prisons in Iraq and their family members residing in IDP camps. This situation amounts to a ticking time bomb, given the risk of producing a new generation of extremists. It is ISIS 2.0 if the international community does not address it. Chairman Romney, ranking member Murphy, along with the long-term security partnership Can Iraq prevent the territorial resurgence of ISIS that would threaten the United States, Iraq, and the world? If sufficiently resourced for the long game, the Department of Defense efforts will afford diplomats the space to help Iraq overcome its challenges. Over time, we will further economize our footprint, normalize our security cooperation, and sustain an increasingly mature partnership with Iraq. I look forward to discussing how we best advance our interests with you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mulroy. Uh, let me begin by uh, offering uh, uh, several questions, and, and hopefully I can hear from both of you on these. Um, first of all, one of the things that, uh, that we heard in our, in our travel uh, was from the leadership of the country, which, as you know, represents uh, leaders from uh, Kurdistan uh, as well as Sunni and Shia leaders with the President, the Prime Minister, and the Speaker of the House. And um, uh, they made it uh, a very high priority in their communication with us to communicate that they have no interest in becoming a, uh, a, a puppet state of Iran, uh, and that they, they believe that at least in the public press, um, and perhaps I'm projecting on them my own reading of the public press, a, a sense that, uh, that Iraq has fallen under the sway of, of Iran uh, and will increasingly do their bidding uh, they instead said no our interest is not becoming the um, the puppet of any nation uh, but is instead to become an independent and and strong uh, uh, stable uh, entity is uh, is that an accurate assessment of what you believe is really the intent of the leadership uh, in Iraq um, or is that uh, just what they hope to be able to sell to to traveling Americans
2: Hi. Senator, thank you very much for that question. Um, I concur, uh, I I mean, I, I believe that that is an accurate portrayal of the genuine Iraqi leadership view on this issue. Iraq's goal is to become a sovereign, independent, unified, democratic state, and that is certainly the goal of the United States policy as well. Uh, when you look at, at the horrors of what has happened in the last few years in Iraq, the, the ravages of the institutions, both from the, the era of Saddam Hussein and then uh, in the difficult fight against ISIS, uh, the Iraqi authorities have a, a real desire to rebuild institutions um, and and uh, ensure that they have the capacity to withstand any threats, any uh, hostile actions from any of their neighbors.
0: Yes, Mr. Mulroy.
3: Yes, sir. So uh, they said essentially the exact same thing to me in my trip in March. And I would point out that all three of those leaders you mentioned have long standing relationships with U.S. Uh, senior leaders for decades. Uh, and they do talk very bluntly. I would say that the July 1st proclamation by the Prime Minister is a very good step. Uh, to bring them under the control of the Iraqi security forces and away from political affiliations. It's important to note that some PF, all PMF fought against ISIS. Some of them are very well thought of by the Iraqi people. Others are, are almost wholly controlled by the Iranians and not only don't work for the best interests of the Iraqi people, but they have essentially turned to criminality to fund themselves even further. And they have become less and less uh, uh, favored by the Iraqi people. It is important, I think, that we do everything we can to help facilitate the government in Iraq, bringing in the good and the disciplined PMF under the the authority of the Iraqi military and uh, disband
0: the remainder. One of the things we heard from the leaders there was uh, a recognition that uh, they share a very large border with Iran that Iran has substantial interest in in extending their influences throughout Iraq, um, that Iran is investing substantially in enterprises of various kinds to to strengthen those ties, uh, and they wonder why aren't other nations doing the same. Um, uh, given the, the, uh, the obvious uh, conflict uh, geopolitically between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I would have anticipated that Saudi Arabia would have been a very active participant, participant in Iraq as well, that it would have been countering uh, Iran's influence there by its own investments, by its own uh, uh, personnel, cultural exchanges, and so forth. But that was not the, uh, the, um, uh, what was re- recounted by Iraqis leaders uh, is there a reason that Saudi Arabia is not more involved uh, and other Arab nations are not more involved with, uh, uh, with Iraq? And are there ways to encourage their greater participation there as well as more U.S. participation? Clearly, the ExxonMobil uh, investment would have been a major uh, connection between our nations. But are, are there ways we have of encouraging uh, Saudi Arabia and others to become more involved uh, with the Iraqi economy?
2: Those are all great questions, Mr. Chairman. Um, I would note that Prime Minister um, uh, the, the Prime Minister's first trip outside of Iraq um, was to Cairo, not to Tehran. And this was a really important step uh, because he went there to meet with heads of state from, from Egypt and Jordan to further the Iraqi government's goal of further reintegration with the Arab neighbors. Um, Iran and Iraq have a shared border, a shared history, a shared culture, uh, a lot of the infrastructure is connected. So that's, those are tough things to undo. But I think the fact that the Prime Minister's very first trip was to the Arab world rather than to Tehran shows that he's very committed to working to strengthen those ties. Um, we're working very hard to support the, Iraqis, uh, the Iraqi government's goal of becoming more sovereign, more independent. Energy independence, as you highlighted in your remarks, is a very key part of that. Uh, in addition to the various US projects that we're promoting, we're also looking at, at ways that um, that Iraq could hook its infrastructure further into the GCC countries or even into Jordan. So these are very interesting ideas uh, for Iraq to pivot west rather than east. Um, the business climate in Iraq is challenging, and um, I think it's it's a lot easier for countries with less high standards in the United States, countries that do not have strong anti-corruption laws to do business. Uh, But that said, we're working very closely with the Iraqi government to try to improve the business climate there. Um, As I mentioned in my opening remarks, UNCTAD has an important project that works to improve the business environment. Uh, We've been very supportive in working with the US Chamber of Commerce and other business delegations, other business groups, to bring American businesses to Iraq to establish the relationships, to get to know the environment there. Deputy Secretary Sullivan, for example, uh, led our largest ever trade delegation um, to Iraq. And we continue to do that. So it's, it's a work in, in progress um, of supporting Iraq's school to reorient itself away from dependence on Iran in an economic sense to opening to the rest of the region.
0: Thank you. I'll, I'll let Mr. Mulroy uh, respond briefly, if you will. Uh, but in particular, why is Saudi Arabia not more involved there, uh, and, uh, and can we encourage that? So to the point of your question,
3: you know, with the tyranny of geography when it comes to Iran, they do share a 900-mile border with Iraq, and they have $12 billion in trade, and they have extensive permanent family ties back and forth. For the U.S., we provide a lot of things that they don't. We provide the top-notch security assistance that actually is for the benefit of the government of Iraq. We also, of course, have international leadership when it comes to stabilization and economic development, specifically to... Uh, Saudi Arabia, we under uh, defense diplomacy, so to speak, uh, support the State Department in its efforts to get Saudi Arabia more involved. And I think they are getting more involved. I also think they're getting more involved in some of the key components of that, which includes bringing some of the disenfranchised uh, parts of Iraq, like the Sunni Arab tribes, into um, the future of Iraq. They have a unique perspective on that and capability to do that and they have been involved with us in developing that tribal engagement program that we think is so important so we don't uh, do some perhaps the same mistakes of the past where we've just uh, excluded the Sunnis. I'd also point out um, the fact that Jordan is becoming more involved economically uh, with our encouragement with Iraq and I think that's, uh, that's very important. Because at the, at the end of the day, the key component of stabilization is economic development that lasts. And I think uh, coming from the Department of Defense person, uh, that is the key to further normalizing our relationship and getting to a place where
0: we are not so dependent on U.S. military support. Thank you for your uh, responses to my questions. Senator Murphy.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, again, thank you both for your service and for being here today. Um, uh, Mr. Mulroy, first, I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the efficacy of our uh, security assistance. Um, The United States spent about $20 billion on the Iraqi military between 2003 and 2011. Of course, then faced with a marching ISIS in 2014, an army of a quarter million just seemed to melt away. Uh, since 2014, we've spent another $5 billion, uh, and so the logical question is, what are we doing differently this time around um, to assure that the same outcome doesn't repeat itself? But I mentioned in my opening statement another concern, which is that when we were there, one of our top commanders um, um, talked to us about the difficulty of getting large amounts of short-term money out the door. Uh, we appropriate on an annual basis, we have given significant amounts of security assistance, and it. Worries me that it seems that many of our military top military people there are spending lots of time spinning their wheels just trying to get as much money out the door as quickly as possible because they don't know whether it will be there the next year. It, leading one of these individuals to say to us, we'd rather have $100 million over 10 years than $100 million in one year so that we could engage in long-term projects. Um, so my, my question is, what are we doing differently this time? What's the, what were the top-line things we're doing differently? And is there a danger about not having a longer-term commitment here so that we can do longer-term military and security investments rather than just speeding money out the door?
3: Yes, sir. So I, I would point out that uh, in 2008, when we had uh, uh, 120,000 troops there, we were spending $150 billion a year. And now in 2019... Uh, we're spending $15 billion. For me, it still sounds like a lot of money, because it is. Uh, but it's important to see that we have a trend in the right direction when it comes to expenditures of taxpayer money. I would say one of the difference when we saw the collapse of the, uh, of the military, the Iraqi military in 2014, to when we saw how they performed uh, more recently, 17, 18, 19, uh, one of the things they had, and that's why I highlighted in my opening, is the enable, enabling component of the U.S. military. Um, it, is, it is a game changer when you have air support conducted by the most effective Air Force in the world. And we have advisors that can actually assist them on the ground and give them the confidence that it'll, they'll be there in the height of the battle, I really do think that, um, in my estimation, is the game changer. When it comes to the specifics of the spending as you requested, I think I've heard that a lot when it comes to government spending everywhere that there's a requirement to spend everything at the end of a, a particular fiscal year, and that oftentimes people spend, and I think that's a, a legitimate issue uh, that you raise, uh, which also includes in a place like Iraq. From my perspective, everything we're trying to do now is move uh, more toward the economy of forces, which I've already highlighted we are, but also to a normalization. So we, we've established an SDO debt, um, and and we are moving toward a traditional country team model where the sto dat answering to the ambassador now ambassador tooler and we will start standardizing and modernizing and normalizing our our spending as we do that we're doing that with uh, Uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga right now and we obviously are going to be doing that when it comes to the rest of the Iraqi. uh,
1: We we can solve that problem partially. Congress can do a multi-year authorization. It's still an authorization subject to appropriation but we can at least provide some of that certainty um, and I would encourage our committee to look into that. Um, Ambassador um, Polish, I wanted you to address something else I brought up in my opening statement, which is a report over the weekend, um, a really concerning report suggesting that the embassy in Baghdad is down to 15 functional political staffers. Um, Help me understand the the conundrum I laid out in my opening remarks, which is uh, how do we maintain our political mission inside Baghdad if we have pulled so many of our personnel out. Can you confirm that we are down to 15 functional political staffers in Baghdad? And if we were able to maintain a full diplomatic corps there during the height of the Iraq war in the 2000s, why can't we do the same today? The report from this weekend suggests that this is a permanent decision, that we that, that state has made a decision that they are going to keep these low levels of staff um, for... Um, for a time uncertain, Um, and so given that report, I wondered if you could clarify some of that for the committee today.
2: Of course. Um, First, I'd like to maybe go back just a couple of months to early May, uh, where we faced a very serious, specific, credible threat stream against U.S. personnel in Iraq, and that threat stream has not diminished. It's still there. So that was the reason that Embassy Baghdad requested authorization to go to ordered uh, departure status, and the Secretary of State approved that on May 14th. This is a temporary situation. Ordered departure is something that is done in 30-day increments. We constantly evaluate the situation, looking carefully at the threat information that we have and the personnel on the ground, and to make sure that we've got the right right fit. and the Secretary just renewed the order departure status on July 12th for another 30 days. Um, I would prefer not to go into specific numbers of, of personnel that we have on the ground in this open setting, but I'd be very, very happy to brief you uh, later. Um, I would note again, though, that this is just a temporary decision. We have not made any decisions to permanently withdraw staff. We're constantly evaluating the situation and it it is certainly our hope that we are able to have a maximum presence on the ground in order to achieve all of the important objectives that we have.
1: Yeah, certainly without getting into classified threat assessment, I, I, I I think it's hard to suggest that the threat is higher today than it was during the height of the insurgency and the fighting in and around Baghdad. And so while I would never second guess security decisions, I would hope that um, if there is a long-term decision made um, to have lower levels of staffing there, that we start to think about how to increase security so that we can return to some level of political functionality. Because if we don't, If we maintain a dozen or two dozen political staffers there, it is an invitation for ISIS to reemerge because we are not there helping the Iraqis do the hard lift of political reconciliation that ultimately protects our interests against the future rise of ISIS or a follow on organization. And so um, I I understand how sensitive this is because you're talking about the lives of uh, American personnel there. Um, but the risk of a, of a long-term political withdrawal from Baghdad um, could, in the end, cost as many American lives as we are saving in the short run, and it's just something I hope the um, uh, the State Department is is contemplating. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I may have a, f- a
0: few if we have a second round as well. Thank you, thank you, Senator Murphy, um, Senator Kane.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses. Good to be with you again. Um, how would you describe the relationship between the United States and Iraq? Are we partners? Are we allies? Are we competitors? Are we adversaries? Um, you don't have to pick from my labels, but how would you describe the relationship?
2: I would say that we're partners. Um, and this Iraqi government in particular has made it very clear that it's, it is intent upon... Uh, ensuring Iraq's sovereignty, its independence, uh, its uh, unified democratic status, so we're a partner in working with them. And, and, the,
4: and the current government continues to want U.S. engagement as they pursue that strategy, correct?
2: Absolutely. We are there at the invitation of the Iraqi right. government.
4: Mr.
3: Mori, how would you describe the relationship? I completely agree, sir. It's a partnership, and I think and I think they would actually say the same thing. Specific to the gover- government of Iraq, if you look at the president, Baram Salah, he used to be the chairman of the uh, American University in, in uh, Saladin, and I think most of my colleagues have known him for 10, 15 years in the Department of Defense. Uh, the prime minister, very similar relationships. Um, THE SPEAKER OF THE HOUSE, ALBUSI, HE, he WORKED VERY CLOSELY w- WITH US WHEN HE WAS THE GOVERNOR IN ANBAR, mm-hmm. AND MANY OF US KNOW HIM. SO it's, it's, I, I THINK THEY TALKED TO US uh, PRETTY BLUNTLY. And I think we know what they're saying when they're saying it, and I think that we both view this as a long-term partnership because we have been together so long. So it's more than just a label. It's actually real relationships that have proven effective in the fight against ISIS, for example, and hopefully will prove effective going forward as they become more and more sovereign and have the ability to push back
4: against And there's no doubt, is there, as we sit in the room today, that we would not consider Iraq an adversary or an enemy, correct? Iran, sir? we would not consider Iraq oh, we definitely. an adversary or enemy, would we? No, sir. Um, the reason I ask that is uh, there are currently pending two authorizations for military force against Iraq. The 1991 authorization for use of military force by the United States against Iraq had no termination date, and so that is still a pending war authorization against the sovereign government of Iraq. That was the first Gulf War. That was never repealed. There was a 2002 authorization for war against the sovereign nation of Iraq that was passed in October of 2002, had no termination date. That is still pending. It strikes me as highly bizarre that we're sitting here at a hearing talking about our partner, uh, the long-term partnership, going through the president and the prime minister and the speaker and their connections to the United States, And and you're stating facts that I believe from my visits there as well, and my conversations with Iraqi officials, and yet we still have two unexpired war authorizations against Iraq. Senator Young and I have introduced a bill that would repeal the 1991 and the 2002 war authorizations to simply recognize that we're not enemies anymore. We're not adversaries. We're not seeking to, through military force, topple the government of Iraq anymore. We're actually using our military assets to support the government of Iraq. Um, I hope my colleagues would agree that if, if we can't agree on a lot of complicated things, when we've got the Trump administration witnesses sitting here looking us in the face and telling us we are partners with Iraq, why do we need two war authorizations with Iraq? I've been trying to get the administration to, They they uh, their official position is we do not seek a change of any war authorization at this time, but they've given me no reason to suggest why we should continue to have war authorizations against Iraq. And I'm deeply worried that if we pass war authorizations with no termination date, and we leave them sort of floating out in space, these zombie war authorizations, that can be used by any administration in India any time to cook up a bootstrapped argument for some military misadventure, then we really are not doing the job that we should do. The legislation that I filed with Senator Young and others has been pending before this committee now for a number of months. I would hope that my colleagues would support the idea of of bringing it up and repealing the war authorizations and sending the very clear message that we don't consider Iraq an enemy, we don't consider Iraq an adversary, we don't think they're going to turn into one tomorrow. If they did, we could pass a new authorization, but why would we leave war authorizations out there against them? Um, On on the Kurds, I want to talk to you about this. Um, In my visits to Iraq, the situation Uh, The relationship between Baghdad and Erbil is is a complicated one, and there's much history there. And I know it's the U.S.'s preference that Iraq be democratic and and stable and united. Uh, There are Kurdish aspirations. This is not necessarily every Kurd believes this. It's not a monolith, but there's Kurdish aspirations for independence. There's longstanding disagreements over allocation of oil revenues and payment for governmental services, et cetera. I'm curious... Uh, tell us a little bit about what you think is that kind of current state of play uh, between the new relatively new government in baghdad and 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 also a new governmental arrangement. The last names are not different, but some of the uh, individuals are different uh, in Kurdistan.
2: Uh, first, senator, i would I would stress that a strong, Kurdistan regional government within a unified and federal Iraq is essential to Iraq's long-term stability and the enduring defeat of ISIS. This is a top priority for us. So in the wake of the 2017 referendum for independence, uh, we have been working very hard to try to uh, promote reconciliation between uh, the Kurds and, and the central authorities in Baghdad. And we've had some successes. Uh, oil is now flowing through the Kirkuk uh, pipeline. That's important. The central authorities are now paying the salaries of civil servants in the KRG Um, And we're working very effectively to promote greater security cooperation, particularly in the seam line areas between the Kurdish uh, Peshmerga and the Iraqi central authorities. So we still have a ways to go uh, But we feel that there is positive progress and I would note in fact that the new KRG prime minister was just in Baghdad I believe uh, either yesterday or today. Mm -hmm. So that's a very positive sign.
4: Excellent. Mr. Moroy, do you want to add to that?
3: Yes, sir. So I'd agree with everything that the ambassador said Uh, One Iraq policy, I think, is the best policy, not just for the United States interests, but for Iraq and for the Iraqi uh, uh, Kurdistan region. I would say, albeit anecdotally, I've talked and I know several uh, of the new generation of uh, Iraqi Kurd, and they would highlight that during their struggles against Saddam Hussein, that 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 generation often relied on external forces. Sometimes it was Iran. The current generation struggle against Saddam Hussein and after that against ISIS, they relied almost exclusively on the United States. So their affinity with the United States is very strong. And I think that we can talk to them more openly that way and explain, at least from our perspective, why we think a one Iraq policy is the most effective for them, not just for the overall mission. And I think that many of them understand that. Thank you very much, appreciate it. Thanks, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you. Senator Shaheen.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. I'm sorry that I missed um, your testimony, but I-, I was in Iraq in April, and certainly what I've heard you say in terms of the new government, I, ser- I would agree with. They were very supportive of the United States um, partnership there and of, our, um, of the joint command that is operating there. One of the concerns that we heard when we were there is about the ISIS detainees that are still in Syria and the potential for that to become a growing problem for Iraq. Now as we know, many of those detainees are Iraqis, but we have a number of foreign fighters who are being detained in Syria. Um, and. Most of them are in the custody of the Syrian Democratic Forces. So I wonder, Ms. Palashik, how many ISIS detainees do we know are currently in the custody of the central government of Iraq or of the Kurdish regional government?
2: Senator, thank you for raising this issue. It's it's, uh, a serious problem that we spend a lot of time thinking about at the State Department. Um, In terms of the exact numbers, I would have to take that question back and and get back to you, Uh, but this is a global effort. We're engaging with all of our partners throughout the world to ask them to take home they're foreign nationals. Uh, with respect to the situation in Iraq, uh, we also recognize that there are uh, capacity issues. There are rule of law issues. There are human rights issues. So we have um, an intense and ongoing dialogue with the Iraqi authorities to make sure that those Iraqi citizens who are returned to Iraq uh, face a fair, uh, transparent judicial process, and that also the family members who are there, because we, also, we have large numbers of, of children, for example, who are in some of these uh, detention facilities that they have the psychosocial support that they need to ensure that they are reintegrated into society and do not turn to radicalization.
5: Um, Absolutely. It was a very big concern. There was a camp at that time of I think about 70,000 families and detainees that was very close to the Iraqi border and they were quite concerned about what was going to happen to those folks. Um, I saw that Italy recently repatriated a foreign fighter who was in Syria. Can you talk about what Efforts we have underway with some of our Western allies to repatriate the foreign
2: fighters who are from their countries. The Counterterrorism Bureau and the State Department has the lead on that. So um, I think, if with your permission, I'd like to take that question back to make sure that we get you the most accurate information.
5: Um, that would be very helpful, and I'm sure you're aware there is also language in the Defense Authorization Bill that would create a coordinator to help work on the detainee issue because. We have made very little progress, and um, I know that we have some folks who would like to see some of those terrorists brought back. James Foley was a constituent. His family was a constituent of mine. The family um, who was murdered by ISIS, There is a question about whether his murderers are in custody in Syria, and his family and the family of other Americans murdered are very interested in seeing them brought back to justice and tried in our civilian courts. So um, I hope that that will be a focus of the efforts with detainees. Let me go to another question because the other issue that was raised on our trip was um, the importance of a continued U.S. troop presence in Northern Syria and the support for U.S. stabilization efforts in areas that are controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces. I'm concerned, as we have heard the administration talk about the need to draw down those forces, that we don't have any backup there. And can you talk about what the position is of the State Department and the Department of Defense in terms of trying to encourage and ensure that we have stabilization efforts in that northeastern region of Syria? Um, I'll ask you both that question.
2: Okay. Uh, Senator, perhaps I could address the stabilization issue and then ask uh, Mr. Mulroy to uh, discuss the, the troop issues. Um, it's very clear that stabilization efforts need to continue. Um, I think that's the, the painful lesson that we've all learned over these many years now of strife in the Middle East, that if those core issues are left unaddressed, there will still be problems. So the United States is, is still engaged. The administration has made Uh, a priority to have burden-sharing so that it's not the United States alone who's uh, funding all of these efforts. Uh, We've been very successful in securing funds from our Gulf partners, in particular Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Of course, our European partners are there as well. So the United States has residual funding from previous years that we're still using, um, but we, we are also, uh, our partners are relying on US experts then to make sure that the assistance is being channeled in useful and effective ways. We still have our START mission that's based in Turkey, and, and we also have our START forward team um, as well. So we're there, we're in the game, and the State Department feels very strongly that, that we need to continue these stabilization efforts in order to ensure that uh, ISIS truly is defeated.
5: Mr. Mulberry.
3: Yeah, if I could start with the, uh, the, the issue you brought up with the first question. The SDF currently uh, has two, over 2,000 foreign terrorist fighters in their custody from over 50 countries. And this is, this is obviously a group with very limited resources who expends quite a bit of time, effort, and resources taking care of everybody else's problems. So from our perspective at the DOD, we are pushing all the time for our partners to take back their citizens. Uh, it is their responsibility. Uh, specifically stabilization, the Strategic Assessment Review 2018 puts, the USAID, uh, uh, puts State Department in the lead, USAID as the implementer, and the DOD, provide support, security and logistics. And we do so in everything the ambassador just referenced, and that includes in northern Iraq, uh, to the efforts that go on there by by USAID. Uh, from our perspective, the long-term um, plan for, for protecting the religious minorities in these uh, areas is to train local security forces, as police, to be there for the long-term. Uh, the point being is, Locals need jobs. These jobs are obviously um, helpful to stabilize the situation. They will stay there in the long term, and we're going to train them more as police, less as soldiers, as that, uh, for obvious reasons, is what provides long-term security in the area. So, as a concept, that is that is uh, the effort we intend to pursue. But
5: but you're talking about Iraq when you're saying I'm that. Talking about Iraq, not there. Syria.
3: When Iraq, yes, ma'am. Um.
5: Can I ask another question, Mr. Chairman? Because that raises the another issue that we heard when we were there, and that is about the influence of the Iranian-backed militias and the effort to integrate the militias into the structure of the Iraqi security forces. I noticed that um, Prime Minister Mahdi announced on July 1st that all of Iraq's Iranian-backed militias would be more closely integrated. Can you? talk about some of the challenges that exist there and what we're doing to support the Iraqis as they try and um, address those Iranian-backed militias because they have the potential
2: to create a lot of mischief in Iraq. Um, From the, the political diplomatic perspective, it's a huge step that the prime minister has taken by issuing this decree on July 1st. Um, and we are committed to working with uh, Prime Minister Abdel uh, Abdel Nadi and his cabinet to make sure that they implement this quickly. Um, As Mr. Mulray had said in his earlier remarks, the PMF um, played a very important role in the defeat of ISIS, and there are are good groups among them uh, that it will be very important to integrate them fully into the Iraqi security forces. Mm -hmm. There are also undisciplined actors out there who continue to extort local populations who, who are plotting very nefarious activities, the United States has been quite clear in its opposition to these groups. I would note that just in um, March of this year, we designated uh, Harakat al nujaba one of the the primary uh, Iran-backed uh, PMF groups that is is de- engaged in all sorts of deplorable activities. So we will continue to exercise pressure on these groups to ensure that they are no longer able to pose a threat to Iraq or to U.S. interests in Iraq.
3: Yes, completely agree. the The, the PMF is not a homogenous group. Uh, they did many of them did play a really substantial role in defeat of ISIS. So there is a uh, uh, popularity amongst the uh, Iraqi people. Now, many of them have turned to criminality and are essentially a, a scourge on the population. Others have been completely controlled by Iran. Uh, KH has already been designated, and, and Han is now designated. So what what we need to do is be sophisticated in our approach to the PMF, PMF assess them, find out which ones could be integrated into the Iraqi security forces and which ones could never be, and then isolate the uh, the latter, and and obviously embrace the the former.
5: Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Um, I, I, the ranking member has uh, an additional question. We're going to let him ask. I would just underscore before he asks that question, uh, the uh, the concern that uh, that I share uh, with him that that we uh, we need uh, as many diplomatic personnel as possible in Iraq to. Um, uh, encourage that government and to support that government in the enormous challenges that they have. Um, I did hear from another source um, in the administration uh, the belief that, that Iran um, has pulled back from their, their level of threat uh, on, on our, our interests or our resources uh, in the region. Um, I would just encourage the administration to, to be as up-to-date as possible with all of its uh, intelligence resources to make that assessment and uh, and to restore a full diplomatic presence uh, as soon as possible. With that, let me uh, turn to uh, Senator Murphy. Uh,
1: thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm trying to sneak two quick ones in here. Um, Mr. Uh, Mulroy, um, you you described the militia's um, as sort of belonging to two categories, and Ambassador Polchek referenced the same. There's the group that enjoys popular support in Iraq, in part because of the good work they did against ISIS, and then there's the group that is directly aligned with Iran. And, and that's not how I understand it. I understand there to be a Venn diagram in which um, there are groups that have broad popular support and there are groups that have very close relationships with Iran and those two circles overlap in big parts. And one of the concerns that I heard when we were there is that by forcing this choice with the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization, we are, in fact, pushing some groups that exist inside the overlap to Iran because those groups perceive the United States, again, to be a relatively short term player and partner. Iran's going to be around forever. And so, by sort of pushing this question in front of many of these militias that are popularly supported and have relationships with Iran, we are actually. Working against our interests by pushing more of these groups towards Iran, um, they are not making the choice to align with us. Uh, would you disagree with that assessment?
2: I, I fully agree with your assessment that it's it's a little squishier, right? Uh, that there there are overlapping circles, and this is uh, it's an important question that the Iraqi government is grappling with, and that we're grappling with as well. What is the best way to encourage? good behavior from groups that fall into that that middle area. Uh, there are several um, PMF groups who now have political parties and they have members elected to the Council of Representatives. Um, and so how, how could we encourage those groups to become good actors instead of bad actors? So this is an ongoing policy debate within the administration. It's something that, that we're grappling with, uh, but the intent is to do everything possible that we can to... Uh, strengthen Iraq's sovereignty and its capacity to withstand threats to its sovereignty, both internal and external. So you've hit, I think, on, on one of the hot-button issues that we continue to deliberate um and and it's very much on our minds.
1: And I'm not speaking to either of you here. I think the administration has essentially already deliberated on this question and has made a decision with respect to the designation of the IRGC that makes all of your jobs much more difficult. Um, Lastly, Mr. Chairman, if I can just ask one question on um, stabilization to build on Senator Shaheen's question. I just have a hard time figuring out the math here. And again, this is is a question of finite resources. But the estimate is that the rebuilding of places – like West Mosul, um, you know, are in the $80 billion range when you look at all of the work that needs to be done inside that country. And yet we're appropriating about $250 million a year, and we've got commitments from other partners that get that number up to maybe about a billion dollars a year. Um, I just don't know how that math works. If we're putting together a billion dollars, a quarter of that is our money, which, by the way, represents about one quarter of 1% of the US defense budget. Um, How does Iraq put together the dollars to rebuild parts of that country which are literally rubble today? Because again, if they don't rebuild, then it's part of the political impetus for ISIS to emerge. Is the rest of it all on, on them or is there hope that bigger numbers ride to the rescue from outside of the country?
2: There was the Iraq Reconstruction Pledging Conference or perhaps that name isn't accurate but it was uh, early in in 2018 where there were significant pledges from key uh, Arab countries. Um, From the United States perspective, we've been very focused on immediate stabilization needs, getting the essential services back on, providing humanitarian assistance, working on justice and accountability, all of the measures that are required to allow people to come home. And yes, there are huge uh, infrastructure needs that exist. Um, But I think one way to address that would be to also push forward on the economic reform agenda because a lot of reconstruction or a lot of construction writ large, development can be done by the private sector if there's a better business environment. I mean, there's serious money that could be made in Iraq. It's it's a wealthy country in terms of its resources, in terms of its human capacity. So that's why we're also putting the effort on the – the regulatory reforms that will be required to create a more open, inviting business environment because Iraq is a statist economy still. This is a very heavy legacy from the Saddam Hussein era. So whatever we can do to transition the Iraqi uh, economy away from that heavy statist focus to a more open market approach, I think, will be better.
1: As yeah, Senator Romney noted, they don't help themselves when they continue to reject offers from uh, Western companies, Western energy companies, to help them get a better return on, uh, on their rate of investment in fossil fuels. So I uh, appreciate that answer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you so much to the uh, individuals who've been witnesses today for providing your testimony, as well as your response to our questions. Thank you also for your service to our, our great country. Uh, For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And so with thanks to the committee members, this hearing is now adjourned.